we'll be reading the entire chapter, Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I, make him, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. And a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Because the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man, his thoughts, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Thus far the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and I pray that we would be fed by it this morning. That we would eat and we would eat you. That we would take in your word and be shepherded by it. More than that, Lord, that we would have our eyes fixed on Christ And that we would respond as the sheep of our good father. And that we would share in what he has accomplished by his life, death, and resurrection. Lord, we pray that you would do this. In Jesus' name, amen. So far in the book of Isaiah, we have we've hit some wonderful, wonderful passages in 53, we heard of the Lord Jesus' sacrifice, where he would die instead of his people. He would live a perfect life, and then he would actually take on her sins, his people's sins, his bride's sins, and he would be punished for her sins on the cross, and he would die, and then he would be raised from the dead to enjoy the results of his sacrifice with his beloved bride. And then in, in, in chapter 54, we learn about his bride. Zion, New Jerusalem, the people of God. His 
beloved bride, that he's not just being good to once in a while, but that he puts in a covenant and that she's united to him. The two become one flesh so that she can enjoy all that he is, all that he has, all that he deserves, his inheritance, his life. And then we speak of how this Zion, this church, there's, it's populated with many, 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 many sons and daughters that God gives to her. The children of God who are born from above. They are, they're born supernaturally, not children that she could, she could bear, that she could produce, that she could raise herself, but that the Lord would give to her children. And, and if you remember what the problem was with all these children, what's Zion going to have to do? This bride, the people of God called, called a bride, really many, many people, but personified as one bride. What's she going to have to do with all these kids? Well, she's going to have to pull up the tent pegs and they're going to have, she's going to have to extend the boundaries of her tent, of her household. And what are the boundaries of that household, of the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ? Trick question, there are no boundaries. All authority in heaven and earth were given to him and the household of God shall expand to the ends of the earth. Zion will have no boundaries. The whole earth will be the household of God. And in 54, Zion is called to extend the boundaries, pull up those tent pegs, make them even wider. But how? How is she going to do that? How is the church to expand? The family of God, the household of God, the household of the bride of Christ. How is she going to do that? Is it with the sword? Conquering other nations and making them? Well, it's not. We see in, 50, in 55, it's with, an, it's with an invitation. The invitation, come. Who is this invitation given? To everyone who thirsts. And we see that the invitation is not merely just escape hell. It's not merely escape the wrath of God. It is definitely that we see in 53. But it is more than that. Come and join the household. Come and join Zion. Come and enjoy God. This is not merely just an invitation to escape displeasure or wrath. It is an invitation to enjoy God for enjoyment. And so we're going to find in our first point in verses 1 to 5, everyone, everyone is invited to eat and drink Christ with their ears. So let's read verses 1 to 5. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money. Come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the people. Behold, you shall call a nation that you did not know and a nation that, you did, not, that did not know that you did not know, that did not know you, shall run to you. Sorry. Because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Here we see 
that the thirsty are invited to drink. The thirsty are invited to drink. And here is the assumption that everyone is thirsty. There are people, every single person is thirsty. In fact, the scriptures go even deeper than that. All are dead. Water is the most basic, other than oxygen, you could say. Water is the most basic thing that you can take in. Sustenance that you need for life. Without water, you cannot survive. Water is needed for life. And the scriptures talk about everybody is born in sin. Everyone is dead in their sin. Everyone is dead in sin. In need of at least water. And the lie that Satan gave at the beginning of humanity's history was that greater life is to be had without God. Actually, greater life can be had without God. God is not really the source of life. And but we see that the wages of sin is death. Eternal death. And we remember that the, the opposite, of, uh, the opposite of, of, of life is not non-existence, but death. Where we continue to exist, but we exist in spiritual death. Now the immediate result of the fall was that every single person fell into spiritual death. Every single person is thirsty in this regard. Every person is in need of the life of God. We are without God. We are all thirsty. And this is shown in our lives. Every single person shows their thirst. Every single person shows that they are thirsty. They're born with this spiritual death. Everyone worships something as if it were God. There is no exception to this rule. Every single person worships something as if it were a God. Everyone drinks from wells as if those wells were God. We might identify this as the person's reason for living. Maybe their justification for living. Their hope and their confidence. Their comfort. This looks differently for everybody. It might be pleasure. It might be just pure hedonism. A person lives for pleasure. Whatever the pleasure, they go from pleasure to pleasure, hoping and longing for more, and they treat that as if it were their God. This can be sexual pleasure. This can be drugs. It can be drunkenness. It could be things that are not necessarily wrong, like sexual pleasure. It could be things like wealth or rest or travel or education. It could be the the praise and appreciation of men. It could be comfort. It could even be doing good things. Promoting change or making a difference. It could be a person who makes good decisions. This is my God. I am a person who makes good decisions. I have a good family. We have good results. It could be health or fitness. It could be spirituality. Mystic spirituality, like trying to know the future. I just need to know. And so I'm going to find on Facebook who's the best tarot card reader in my neighborhood. Best palm reader. The person who gives the best crystals. It could be this, or it could be classic man-made religion. Recognizing that there is a God and trying to appease him, trying to please him, making him want to do good to you, or them, to do good to you by earning it, by works or your behavior. But here the Lord says, none of those things cannot satisfy. So the Lord says, none of those things can satisfy. For two reasons, they cannot give you God. Those things cannot give you God, which is the only one who can satisfy you. 
who can give you life, give you spiritual life and eternal life. And they also cannot deal with the thing that separates you from God, which is your guilt, which is your sin. These things then only serve to make that gap even greater, to add more guilt and make you more thirsty. What happens when you drink salt water? It doesn't satisfy your thirst, and it doesn't even bring you to a neutral position that you're just as thirsty as you were before. You are more thirsty. You are more guilty. You are deepening that deadness in sin. And yet every single person here is invited to drink and be satisfied, not just by God, but be satisfied with God. George read for us a very short portion of John chapter 6, where we see Christ is the bread from heaven. Isaiah 55 would certainly have been on his mind. And it may have been on the religious leaders' minds as well, as they were furious with him. Never had a prophet of the Lord said before them, I am your hope. I am the bread of life. I am that living water. All the prophets of God would have said, God is that. Rest, rest in God. Run to God. Be satisfied in God. And Christ Jesus is now standing there. People would have recognized him as a prophet. And now he's saying something that a mere prophet should not say, which is, come to me. Have me and you will be satisfied. Your soul will be satisfied. You will have life by having me. No prophet was permitted to say that if it was just a mere prophet. Christ calls himself the living water. He calls himself the bread of life. This is very important for us to recognize. When Jesus calls himself the bread, whose body that we have to eat, whose flesh we have to eat, and whose, whose blood it is that we have to drink. We understand this is a very, very graphic image. What is he saying by this? Oh, we can understand what he's saying by what he is not saying, what he could have said but didn't say. Jesus is not just a good example. Look at how it is to be saved. He's not saying, look at how it is to be satisfied, how to satisfy yourself. He's not saying, I am like watching a good cooking show who can teach you how to bake your own bread. He's not saying that. I'm showing you how to get life and how to make life. He's not saying, I will show you how to cook and bake bread. I know you don't cook bread. You bake bread. But he's not saying that. Christ is not saying you're saved by following my example. He's also not saying, I will help you make bread. I'm not just an apprentice or some hired hand, a really good experienced baker who you could hire so that you can bake bread and make life for yourself. He's not saying, I'll give you money so that you can buy bread. He's saying, I am the bread. He is the bread. To have him is to have life. He is saying, I did everything that you need in order to have life. He's not saying merely follow my example, but I am your life. And here we see the difference between the gospel and every single other religion. Even the perverted gospel that the Pharisees and the, the, lead, the religious leaders of the Jewish people had when Jesus came. This is the big difference. Christ is not giving you instructions as to how to live. He's not telling you how to save yourself. He's saying, I am your salvation. Jesus kept God's law 
in your place. Jesus kept it in such a way that it counted as if you had done it. And then Jesus died in your place for your sins. He doesn't just tell you about salvation. He is your salvation. He is your salvation. He is the bread. And how do we eat him? How do we eat the gospel? How do we hear? The, how, how, do we, how do we take in this life? It is by faith. Did you notice verse 2? How he compares this idea of eating, and it's also listening. Why do you spend your money for which is that which is not bread? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Listen and eat. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear. You see that he is saying what Christ said in the Gospels. You take him. You eat him. You receive his life by faith. By faith. Now it's important to note that everyone thirsts. Everyone by the fall into sin, everyone thirsts. They have that deadness in sin that they need life. Everyone thirsts, but not all thirst for God. Jesus said this in John chapter, John chapter 6 as well. He refers to this. You guys are coming after me, not because you want me. Not because of what these miracles say about me, that I am the bread of life, but because you just want more food. Everyone thirsts, but not all thirsts for God. And this is why Jesus in the Beatitudes says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And so this gives us an understanding, a little bit a broader, helpful understanding of what does it mean to believe. You may have heard that, that we are saved by faith. In John 3, 16, God gave his only beloved son, that whoever believes in him has eternal life. We need to understand, what does it mean? What does the Bible mean when it says belief or faith in Christ? Well, first, it means that you know the gospel. You know that you are dead in your sin, that you are dead. You're born more than thirsty. Thirsty is an understatement. You are dead in your sin, and then that God gave his son to pay for salvation for you, to die in your place to take your sin and take your death and rise from the dead. So you know this and you believe it. You know that's true. But dear friends, the devil knows that it's true. Faith is more than just knowing it is true. It is trusting in it. It is desiring what the gospel offers. You know that the gospel reconciles you to God, that the gospel gets you God. And that's what you trust the gospel for, that I get God. Satan would love to be forgiven. Satan would love not to go to hell. It's not the place where he rules and has a great time. It is a place where he is punished for his sin, and he will be sent when the Lord Jesus returns. But what Satan does not want is he does not want God. He doesn't want to be reconciled to God as his servant. He doesn't want that. And here we see in verse 2, it says, Why do you spend your money for that which is bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Faith is knowing the gospel is true 
in delighting in what the gospel offers. I want God. And I know that I can't have him because of my sin. And that's why I'm so grateful for the cross, because Christ took my sin. So now I can have God. Did you notice that there's this weird thing where he's saying, come buy things without cost? Isn't it weird? Why would he say, buy it for free? Normally, you wouldn't say, buy this for free. Like, come just get this thing. It's there. It's offered. You know, in, in Winnipeg, we have this, the, these, uh, these days where you put junk on your front lawn, and it's just people can just take it. This is not what he's saying. He's saying, buy it for free. So first of all, let's focus on that free thing. Salvation, if anybody receives salvation, it is a gift. Salvation is something that is won by Christ. You are not saved by obeying God's law. You are saved because Christ obeyed God's law for you. You are not saved because you can pay for your sins, but because Christ paid for your sins instead of you. You're not saved because you can, you can, you can uh, rescue your own life, but because Christ rose from the dead instead of you. Ephesians 2 says that by grace we are saved through faith, not of works. This isn't wages, it's a gift. And yet, he's saying, buy it. Buy it without price. Did you notice that? Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. What is he meaning by saying, buy this for free? Because this is not merely charity. This is not merely a drop-in. This isn't merely a handout that you just take and it's not merely somebody opening up their home for you and you can just come into their home and just eat their food as a guest or as a stranger. No, this is much more than that. Those who come to Christ become owners of salvation. You become co-heirs with Christ. You are not just strangers who are gathered at the Father's household. You become his children. Or to put it on a greater scale, if we put all the people of God together, we call it the church, the bride of Christ. She becomes a co-heir with him because the two become one. It's not like she's enjoying some stranger's food or some, some stranger's charity. This is her husband. They are one. This is her house now. So dear friends, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, the gifts and life of God are God's gifts to you and you receive them for free. But they are not a fleeting gift. They are not temporary. They are yours because you are his children, his co-heirs, not just guests in his house, but they are yours, Christ having purchased them for you. And here we see that a Zion of all nations is being gathered from all the nations. We can see this here when, when it talks about David in verse, in, verse, uh, in verse 3 to 5. talks about the covenant that God made with David. And did you notice in verse 4 it says, Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples. It doesn't say people. Peoples with an S. And again it says, it says that doubled up and a leader and a commander for the peoples. That's not a typo. That's talking about the nations. That's saying he's not just talking about the people of Israel. Zion 
Zion, Jerusalem, will be made up of people of all peoples, of all nations. This is an offer that is to be given to people of all nations. That they can become the rightful heirs to these promises. Not based on their lineage. And not based on their performance. Not because they are naturally the heirs of David. That they're related to David or of Abraham or of Jacob. But that the Lord Jesus is. And all the inheritance that God has promised to the son of David belongs to those who have him, who believe in him. He points us to an everlasting covenant. Did you see that? Verse 3, incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Strangers have been kind to you, I'm sure. There are people who have been good to you, maybe even family members and loved ones who have been good to you. You've experienced the love of people that you no longer experience because maybe they've turned their back on you. Or maybe because they loved you until they died and then they are dead. Dear friends, the love of God that belongs to people who eat the gospel, who believe in Christ, who come to be satisfied in him, is no temporary love. It is a steadfast, sure love. It is unchanging. It is sure. It is an affectionate love where God delights in us. He loves us and he cares for us. And friends, this is why only God in the gospel can satisfy. Every other thing that we try to satisfy ourselves in will fail us at one point or another. And it will certainly fail us, even if we don't recognize it fails us by the end of our life, it certainly will, because it will not deal with our sin, and it will not give us eternal life. Whether that is the appreciation of people, or maybe it is career, maybe it is your confidence and you make good choices, you're a wise person, maybe it is wealth, Maybe it is sexual pleasure. Maybe it is rest. Maybe it is health. Every single thing that you try to satisfy yourself in will eventually fail you. And if you don't see it failing you before you die, you will certainly see it failing you when you die. Not so with the love of God for those who are in Christ Jesus. So why do we spend our money for that which is not bread? Everyone is invited to come to Christ and be satisfied. Let's look at our second point. We'll see this in verses 6 to 9. Turn away from sin to Christ, and he will surely, compassionately, and abundantly pardon you. Let's read 6 to 9. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Thus far God's word. He's saying, seek the Lord. Well, when he says seek the Lord, he's not implying that the Lord is lost and needs to be found. No, you are the one who is lost. He is not hiding. 
And in Romans chapter 10, he's going to say he is as close as the word of the gospel is. When it says seek the Lord, it's not saying go looking around for him. It's saying go find him where he promised to be found. He told you that he will be found in the gospel. Go believe in the gospel and you will be saved. You will find the Lord. Not that he's lost, but you will be found. It does say while he may be found. This is a limited time. Right now, God has been so patient and gracious. Many of you here have heard the gospel so many times. It's been so close to you, salvation, so close. You've heard the gospel. You've heard of his, his imploring invitation, come to me. Come to me. Come to me. And you have not cared enough to come to him. Maybe you thought you didn't need to. Maybe you thought the gospel is for people who are guilty enough to need to be saved. Or people who are desperate enough to not be happy enough and they, they need some sort of a cosmic crutch. He has been so gracious and patient and you do not know that today is not your last chance. Come to him. When your life is over, there is no chance. He's appointed for a man to, to live once and then to die and then to face judgment. But you are not dead yet. Seek the Lord while he is to be found and he is not far off. He is as close as the word of the gospel which you have heard a hundred times today. Come to him. Now coming to him, you see here, it is a turning, turning to him. It's a turning away from something. Some have seen this call to turn away from sin and to Christ as a payment. It's sort of a work that we do. How do you get saved? You reject sin, you choose holiness, you do holy things, and you trust in Christ. That's not what this is saying. It's not saying do good works and be saved. Do good works and trust in him. It's saying turn away from sin, reject sin. You're not paying for salvation here. That's not what he's saying. He's saying you have to choose who is going to satisfy you. A life of sin, a life of independence, a life as a rebel, a life as a, as a rival to God. Do you want that or do you want Christ? You have to choose between these two lives. Turning away from an old life to a new one. Which Christ purchased with his own life. If you have not turned away from sin. If you've only accepted or trusted Christ as the forgiver of sins. And not also as the rescuer of sins. If you haven't trusted Christ, not only as the forgiver of your sins, but as the reconciler to God, the one who brings you to God, who gives you God, who satisfies you with God, who makes you God's obedient child, if that's not what you've come to him for, you've not come to him at all. A turning to Christ in faith is a turning away from a life where you call your own shots where you live independently from God, you live as a rival or as an enemy of God. Turning to Christ is a turning away from sin. Now, there is always risks involved whenever we turn away from something that we are used to, that gives us maybe a little bit of a return on our investment, that satisfies us a little bit. There's always a risk when we turn away from an old God, false God, to something else. Most people are creatures of habit. 
well, I, my, my parents used this bank, so I have to use this bank. I've always used this bank, or I've always done this, or I've always done that. There is risk involved because you think, well, I might lose whatever little bit of joy I have now. Why can I be so sure that if I forfeit my life and eat Christ, why can I be so sure that it will be good for me, that God will keep his promises, that, that when I turn to Christ, that he will, he will receive me graciously? Why is it that we can be so sure that when sinners turn away from sin and turn to Christ, that they will be received by grace? Why? Did you notice the words he gives? Because I'm not like you. My ways are not like your ways. My thoughts are not like your thoughts. The reason we can be so sure that when we turn to Christ for salvation, that we will be received with grace and abundant pardon is because he's not like us. He's not like us. He's not like the religions that we would cook up where we sort of pay our way in and then God is, well, he's still a little angry. We have to pay a little bit more. We would not pardon people as wicked as we have been to the Lord. We would not keep such promises even if we made them. But God says, I am not like you. I have sworn to do this. Do not think when you are repenting that I am like you. Because if you do think God is like you, when you're considering repenting of sin, you will not turn to him. And it is good that God is not like you. He is abundant in pardon. Did you see this? He's rich in mercy. Dear friends, it is true that you have sinned so greatly that what you deserve is the wrath of God in hell forever. That is true. That is how great your sin is. That is definitely true. But what is also true is though your sins are many, his mercy is more. There is not one person in this room whose sins are so great that if they turn away from sin, turn to Christ for forgiveness and salvation. There's not one person whose sins are so great that Christ will say, my forgiveness and my grace is not enough. It is overflowing and abundant. And he's not just saying that. This is not hyperbole in an advertisement that you see on television. His ways are not like ours. He is not exaggerating the way we would. When he says that he will abundantly pardon He means it. And so, do not delay in coming to Christ. Do not delay in repenting and trusting in the Lord Jesus. I want to think about this in two ways. First of all, for conversion. To come to Christ for the first time. Do this immediately and do it with confidence. Do not wait. He will pardon. Whether that's Maybe, maybe you've been living a lie for years that nobody else knows. Maybe you know you're not a Christian and you're just afraid to tell anybody and you just are so embarrassed about this and you're just, God would never accept me. I've been such a hypocrite for so long. He says he will abundantly pardon you. Come to him. Do not delay anymore. Maybe you think your sins are too great. You've got secret sins that nobody knows about and you can't even tell them. No one's sin is too great. Christ's Pardon is abundant. Well, if somebody came to me and told me this, they wouldn't forgive me. Yes, and God is not like them or you. Come to him. Do not delay. 
But I also want to talk about the repentance of a Christian. Maybe last night you were up late doing things you should not have done. Maybe you have been living in a sinful pattern and refusing to repent. Dear Christian, repent now. Do not treat God as if he were you. Do not wait until you've sort of put enough time between that sin and your repentance so that he'll know how serious you are. Because if somebody repents to me and confesses sin, I need them to show how serious that they are before I actually take them seriously. God is not like you. His thoughts are not like yours. His ways are not like you. As high as the heaven is from the earth, that's the difference between him and you. Do not wait. Do not think about God in the way that you think about yourself when you are considering turning away from sin, calling on him for forgiveness for that sin. God, please forgive me. Forgive me for this great sin. Forgive me and cleanse me. Do not wait. Do not treat him like he is you. He is not, and hallelujah, he is not you. Let's look at our third point, which we're going to find in Verses 10 to 13. Our third point is this. Zion's pilgrimage will be marked with assurance, joy, and peace. Isaiah 55, 10 to 13. We're going to get two points from this section, just so you know. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. And shall succeed in the thing for which I sent. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. That the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord. An everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Thus far God's word. Zion's pilgrimage will be marked with assurance, joy, and peace. First, we need to see this is a pilgrimage. He says, you shall go out with joy. First of all, I just have to say, I can't read these passages without the song playing in my, in my head that I learned from my music teacher, Mr. Snyder. But you shall go out with joy. This is Exodus language. Here they are to picture leaving Egypt and this pilgrimage from Egypt to the promised land. And so we see that this is a pilgrimage that he's saying. There is a journey, not a journey to salvation, like if you keep working, you'll save yourself. No, salvation is immediate, and it's also, there's a future element. Because as we've already seen in Isaiah, as soon as you trust in the Lord Jesus, you are Zion. You are part of the bride. You are the family of God. You are a child of God. Immediately, you are immediately Zion. With all the rights and privileges and sweet affection that the Lord has that belong to Zion immediately. But there is a pilgrimage. Zion, the city and citizens of God, are on our way to the new heavens and earth. This is a pilgrimage. A pilgrimage with an already and not yet. Zion is the goal, and yet Zion is already here. We are already Zion. And this is a pilgrimage marked with assurance as sure as God's word is, his oath. When you start on a journey, how can you be sure that you will reach the destination? So I've turned my back on, the pain, on all the pleasures that I can get in this life. How do I know that in the end I will be brought to salvation, brought to joy, brought to Zion? How do I know? And what does he say? Because my word is sure. 
a word never leaves God's mouth without it accomplishing that which it accomplished. And he just told us what that is. I will save my people. I will save my people. I will save my people. Everyone who comes to Christ, he will save. This is what Jesus said. All that the Father gives to me, I will save. He will not fail to save you. Everyone who belongs to Christ, he will take through that pilgrimage. He will hold. You have no risk involved. Because Christ's word is his bond. And his word does not fail. You've made plans that have failed. You've made promises that you've forgot about or failed to keep. This is not possible for God to lie. He has promised that all who belong to Christ will be kept. So it's a pilgrimage marked with assurance. It's also a pilgrimage marked with joy. He says, you shall go out with joy. Even now, dear church, the church is to be marked with joy. Not flippant joy, not casual joy, not silly joy, but real, serious, wonderful joy. And this is a joy that is regardless of circumstance, but not regardless of reality. This isn't a joy that you have in the Lord and you're satisfied ignoring reality. But it is a joy that is regardless of circumstance, a joy that cannot be robbed of you whether you lose your health or your wife or your job or your position in society. This cannot be taken because you are satisfied in the one who is eternal, in the one who is steadfast, in the God who doesn't change, and he has made a covenant with you. Dear church, we are to regularly and consistently enjoy God. The chief aim of man, what we are created for, is to glorify and enjoy God. And no one, dear Christian, can take that from you. Paul in his prison cell could enjoy God. Be filled with joy considering what God has done. This isn't, regard, this isn't in spite of reality. It's based on what God really has done. It's also a pilgrimage that is marked with peace. That doesn't mean it's, a, it's marked by peace with the world. In this world, he says, you will have trouble, but that he has overcome the world. This is a pilgrimage that is marked with peace. And by, by peace, he's not saying zen. Not this, this feeling of zen or this basically uh, divorcing yourself from what's going on in the world and just uh, meditating on nothing. No, no. He's talking about a confidence in your reconciled relationship with God. When he says that you shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace, this is the confidence that belongs to a Christian, knowing that no matter what is happening, I have peace with God. And he has sworn that whoever has peace with him through Christ will never lose that peace. People may hate me, but the Lord loves me. I might lose my life, but I have eternal life. God has made peace with me in his son. Lastly, we want to look at the end of that journey. Our fourth point, our final point is this. All creation will reflect the sure peace and joy purchased for Zion by Christ's life. 
Dear church, the pilgrimage will one day end. Zion will one day make it to Zion. The new heavens and the earth will one day be called Zion, the city of God, the household of God. Now when you die, Zion's pilgrimage isn't done. Your body will go to the grave, will go and become dust, and your soul will be with the Lord where it will be perfect joy and peace. But even there, while you are with the Lord, absent from the body, you will be looking forward to the redemption of all things, the restoration of the world for the new heavens and earth. And you will be looking forward to the resurrection of your body from the grave. Zion's pilgrimage continues until the Lord Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. When the curse will be removed from the earth. It says thorns and thistles will be replaced by myrtle and cypress. No more will we live in a world that sort of fights against and tries to cover up the sweet joy we have with the Lord. The world will then be a perfect place to perfectly enjoy and perfectly reflect the peace that we have with God. Right now we have peace with God in the midst of trouble. But in the new heavens and earth, all that trouble will be removed Right now, even though we are the children of God, even though Zion is the bride of Christ, we live in a world that reminds us of the sin which belongs to all who are in Adam. This world reminds us of the sin that belongs to all those who are in Adam and the curse from God for that sin. But the next world, the next world will be a sign of Christ's righteousness and character. Did you see that? Instead of the thorn shall, verse 13, instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Just like the, the, the world that we live in right now is a constant reminder that there is sin and that God has a wrath against sin, the new heavens and earth will be a perfect reflection of the righteousness of Christ, a constant reminder of how wonderful he is in comparison to Adam, in comparison to us, a constant reminder of the peace that we have, the relationship that we have with God, that it is Christ's relationship with God. The world will perfectly reflect that. And why is it, why is it that this joy and rejoicing will never be cut off? Why is it that this joy will never be cut off? You guys have had joy. I have had joy. We've all had joy that didn't last. Why is it that this joy will not be cut off? Why will the whole world, mountains and trees, helping us rejoice and delight in God, a world so redeemed, it's so suited to our enjoyment of God that you could say that the, all creation is sort of part of the choir. Why is it that this place of joy and rejoicing will never be cut off? What if God remembers our sin? What if he remembers that we don't deserve to be there? And then thinks we should be cut off. Why will that not happen? Because in order to redeem Zion, in order to redeem the church, her husband was cut off. That phrase, cut off, is found both in, verse, in chapter 55 and also in chapter 53. In chapter 3, verse 8, it says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. 
As for his generation, who, cons- who consider that he was cut, out, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? So dear friends, the new heavens and earth, your relationship with God does not last as long as we are able to deserve it. We don't earn a place there because we have no sin or because we have less sin than other people. No, we deserve to be cut off, but we will not be cut off because the Lord Jesus Christ was already cut off for us on the cross. He was already condemned for our sin. And so the enjoyment of the new heavens and earth as the people of God is something that will last for as long as Christ deserves it. And dear friends, how long is that? Forever and ever and ever. So dear church, come to him. Come to him when you are thirsty. And when you are sinning, repent, turn from him. And you will find abundant pardon. Dear church, this also tells us how the church spreads. This is the gospel that we bring to the nations. A gospel that invites people who are thirsty to come to Christ and be satisfied. They are thirsty. And they do need a savior. And how wonderful it is that God would make you the agent where they would hear this good news. So friends, love this gospel. Delight in it. Know it. Know the simplicity of it and how sure it is. And then tell everyone who knows you what the gospel is so that they might come to the waters and drink and never be thirsty again. And then go find people who you don't know and tell them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful invitation. Lord, though we deny that we are thirsty, we know that we constantly act like it, going to false gods, false saviors. And we thank you that you have given us not just instructions as to how to bake bread, how to get life, how to make life, how to keep life, but you have given us yourself. You have given us Christ as the bread, as the water. Lord, I pray that we would, you would take the scales off of our eyes whenever we think that sin is more satisfying than you. And that we would have our eyes open to see how wonderful and delightful you are, the God of all creation, the Lord and giver of life. Lord, I pray that we would be satisfied in you, that we would turn away from sin and be satisfied in you through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.